Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the New York Historical Society on this beautiful Saturday morning. Thank you so much all for joining us. My name is Alex Castle. I'm the manager of public programs here, and it's really a pleasure to welcome all of you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, wanted to let you know we have some new exhibitions on view. There's an exhibition on uh, presidential campaigns on our second floor. We also have our Battle of Brooklyn exhibition that just opened up a few weeks ago in our Smith Gallery as well. So uh, we definitely encourage you to come back and visit those when you can. Uh, wonderful exhibitions. So to, uh, today's program, it's, it's entitled His Final Battle, The Last Months of Franklin Roosevelt, and it's part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, we'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his wonderful support. It's enabled us to do so many incredible things here at the institution, including our Distinguished Speaker Series, as well as our Friday Night Film Series. So many thanks to Mr. Schwartz for that. And in addition, of course, we always like to recognize our trustees and members of our Chairman's Council for all of their wonderful work and support that has enabled us to continue this great mission of ours. So this morning's program, it's going to last about an hour and a half or so, and uh, there will be a question and answer session. We'll have standing mics in the, in the aisles for that. And following the talk, there will also be a book signing with Joseph Lelyveld in our Smith Gallery. The books will also be for sale out, uh, out in our Smith Gallery as well, all uh, right behind you by the Central Park West side of the building. So uh, it's, it's a great honor to, uh, to introduce the speakers this morning. We're thrilled to welcome Joseph Lelyveld to New York Historical. Mr. Lelyveld is a former correspondent and executive editor of the New York Times. In addition, he is a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books. He's the author of several books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning Move Your Shadow and his latest, His Final Battle, The Final Months of Franklin Roosevelt. We are also thrilled to welcome back David Nassau, who is Arthur M. Schlesinger Professor, Junior Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Professor Nassau, is the author of The Patriarch, named one of the 10 best books of 2012 by the New York Times and a 2013 Pulitzer Prize finalist. His previous book, Andrew Carnegie, was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and was the recipient of New York Historical's 2006 American History Book Prize. Before we begin, as always, we just like to ask you to silence any cell phones, any, any electronic devices you may have. And of course, now please join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. You go first since you're on the other side. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, one of the great advantages of being a student of history or a writer of history or a reader of history is that if you don't much like what's going on at the present moment, <laughs> and God knows there are reasons for all of us not to like what's going on right now, you can travel back. Uh, and you can spend an hour and a half or two hours in another time and place. Not necessarily a more peaceful time. Not necessarily a time of less peril or danger to our society and our democracy. But a different time. And at 11 o'clock, we can all jump back into the present. <laughs> uh, I am delighted to have the opportunity to have an extended conversation with Joe about this remarkable book. I'm not going to 
bore you by reading the reviews, uh, but it has, they have been filled with praise, admiration for the writing, for the research, for the organization, for the master storytelling, and for the research. And it's all well-deserved. So I'm delighted to be able to have this conversation. Let's start at the beginning, or try to. Tell us how you got from Gandhi, the subject of your last biography, uh, to FDR. Um, why FDR, and why the end of his life? I was not looking for another great spiritual figure. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's the question I'm most frequently asked and the one I find hardest to answer. And, and the, the blunt truth is, I can't remember. <laughs> Which is, a, I guess, a reflection on my stage in life. But uh, I, I read something somewhere, not a book, that started me thinking about Roosevelt. And, uh, and I was interested in the question of what you could find if you looked into the literature on Roosevelt, which is vast. Uh, I wasn't even thinking of going to uh, the archives at that point. Uh, about his own thoughts about, about the ultimate existential question of mortality at this stage in his life. Was there, was there a personal story to be told? And, and I, be, I kept looking and looking and going a little further, reading old um, newspapers, and I didn't even think at this stage I was working on a book. And then I realized that I was up against one of the most reticent public figures. He was, he was loquacious and outgoing and charming, but he, he hardly ever confided anything in anybody. And, and his position on lots of things were was hard to find. And I became, I, I went from the big existential question as I was thinking about this to being just intrigued by the way Roosevelt thought, which at some level is the way anybody in, in that position has to think. Uh, he would have, he, he, he never had one thing on his mind. He had four or five or six things on his mind. And he had, what was great about Roosevelt is he had goals in each case but uh, which I'm not sure all our presidents have had, uh, but but he was looking for opportunities to get there, and and uh, and and his, and his health just became another one of the issues he had to finesse and maneuver as, as he went forward. That's what I came to dimly see and to believe. Um, there, there's almost no one piece of paper you can hold up that uh, that gives. Roosevelt's personal thoughts on on his situation. There's one charming letter to a, a State Department lawyer named Ben Cohn, a very important New Deal figure, former brain truster, uh, who wrote him, uh, sent him a, an eight-page essay talking about the difficulties of running again for for a fourth term, and and Roosevelt. Um, uh, wrote back immediately, read the whole thing. Basically, the, the, Cohn had the, had the nerve to, to say to Roosevelt, is there any alternative to a fourth term? Because he was saying, even if you're elected, and even when the war is over and we're victorious, it's going to be a very difficult administration. 
and 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 uh, and it could result in the in the death of all your ideas and values for a time. And and Roosevelt wrote back a letter that said uh, uh, that he thought there was a very just estimate, and uh, you let it said you left out only one thing, and that one thing is my feelings. Uh, this is. This is his feelings, which he almost never spoke about. And, and, he said, and then it says, I am, I am feeling plaintive, as, as ever yours, FDR. <laughs> and that was the whole letter. <laughs> well, you did, a, you know, the, one of the things that works in the book, I think, is the, the, the melding of the, the personal and the political, of the private and the public. Um, I mean, you come away from this book knowing this guy probably better than he knew himself. Uh, because he that. didn't, well, he didn't want to look in these corners, and you look in some of them. Uh, your, your, the book begins, the book is the, roughly the last 500 days of FDR's life, and it begins with his return from a five-week, 15,000-mile trip um, to Tehran to meet with Churchill and Stalin. Do you want to read some, the passage from the sure. book in which you talk about that? It, it, meeting Stalin had been one of Roosevelt's main goals even before we entered the war formally. And um, because, I'll just say this briefly, Roosevelt had his mindset on, on the future, on the results of the war, even, be, even before we were fully in the war. And he, in some ways, quite rightly, when you think about it, thought that Stalin was the key to that future. He, he, I think it's fair to say he knew who Stalin was. Uh, but... But he also thought that there might be some way to turn Stalin into Gorbachev. <laughs> and, 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 and basically bribe the Soviet Union to enter an era of glasnost. He was just sort of a half a century early. But, um, but, but he, he was more concerned with working out some kind of arrangement in the alliance that would assure the peace of the world afterwards than he was with even establishing the international organization. That's quite clear. Uh, and in a way, he took the UN as second best at the end of his life. Okay, so he, he, in my mind, the book starts, it doesn't read that way chronologically, but the book starts from the... Uh, Day Roosevelt leaves the uh, White House to go to Tehran and ends with his death. Now, so the passage that David's pointing me to is, is um, gets to that. There, there was no such thing as television at his press conferences. No question of a camera following him as he entered or left a room. His care carefully staged public appearances were rare and grew rarer. Under wartime censorship, officially described as voluntary, but monitored by the Office of Censorship, 
headed by a former Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press, directly responsible to the president. His actual whereabouts were routinely deemed a state secret. He took no reporters to Tehran and would take none later to his second meeting with Stalin at Yalta. In the final 519 days of his life, counting from the date of his departure for Tehran, November 11th, 1943, he was away from the White House more than he was in residence, spending only 208 nights there in what was not quite a year and a half. The two overseas summits accounted for 72 days, involving long sea voyages back and forth. His 21 trips to Hyde Park in his special train, almost invariably by night, add up to another 95. Altogether, preferring to travel at normal half speeds to avoid being jostled in his berth, where his useless legs made it hard for him to steady himself in bumpy stretches, he spent 60 nights on trains in this period. Now, don't let the engineer set any speed records, he instructed the Secret Service on most of these nights. A cross-country trip to the Pacific and back in the summer of 1944 to California by rail, then Hawaii and the remote Aleutians by ship, plus political campaigning in the autumn account for most of the remainder of his days on the rails. In those 17 months, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt were in the same place, according to account based on the Roosevelt Library's records of their day-by-day whereabouts, only 170 days, about one-third of the time. And on, on the majority of those days, the two principals in this extraordinary political partnership that their marriage had long since become did not take their meals together. Only on the completion of a journey, usually marked by his return to Washington, could any of these trips be reported in the press. In April 1944, as D-Day drew near, he was gone for a month. The New York Times, in one of its few references to his absence from the White House, used a subordinate clause in a brief story on his wife to reveal that the president was somewhere in the South. Three months later, as the Democratic Convention gathered in Chicago, he stopped his private train in the rail yards for a single political conversation. The fact that he'd been in Chicago wasn't revealed for another eight days by which time he was in San Diego, a fact that then remained concealed until he reached Honolulu. The first dispatches permitted on his trip out west in the summer of 1944 had to be dateline San Diego, uh, not San Diego, but a U.S. naval base on the Pacific coast. He'd already been on the road in his special train for a week. Members of the cabinet became accustomed to being unsure of the president's whereabouts. Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of War Stimson, who by then had responsibility for the Manhattan Project, the biggest secret of them all, took it as a sign of great trust when the president told him, frankly, that was the word Stimson used, nearly a week in advance, the date, destination, and purpose of his trip to Tehran. In this atmosphere of secrecy, due partly to legitimate considerations, mostly to Roosevelt's own inclinations, suggesting a deep-seated wish to separate himself from his office. The questions of where he was and how he was increasingly ran together. The trouble now is that the president is almost inaccessible, the war secretary wrote in his diary in a passing moment of frustration not long before that meeting. He has been sick for three or four days, and now when he comes out, when when he's come out, 
He's got such an accumulation of work, it's as difficult to get to him as it would be to get at Mohammed. The, the secrecy that insulated Roosevelt in wartime allowed a sense of freedom that his disability and office had tended to deny him. His loyal press secretary, Steve Early, Riley said as much in a letter to a friend just two months after Pearl Harbor. Very confidentially, the president left Washington last Saturday. He has been resting and sleeping ever since, behaving like a free man in seclusion somewhere within the continental boundaries of these United States. Everyone understood that an overstressed war president was entitled to breaks, might now and then be under the weather. The concern that he might have suffered an irreversible decline in health occurred to few outside the hothouse of political Washington and was uttered by even fewer before the political campaign got rolling. Even then, it was hardly ever up front in the news, except in the most rabid sectors of the anti-Roosevelt press, notably Rob, Colonel Robert McCormick's Chicago Tri Tribune and his cousin Joe Patterson's New York Daily News. This is taking longer than it should, but <laughs> uh, let's see what, what I can skip over. I then write a bit about his health in 1940 when he ran for a, th a third term. And, and there were real issues shortly after he, he was reelected. By the start of 1940, and people were wondering even then, notably Harold Ickes, whether he could survive a third term. By the start of 1944, it seemed clear that he'd stood the strain. But early on, following the 1940 victory, the reelected president had taken an almost immediate turn for the worse. In the first months of the third term, he'd actually been in rockier shape than he'd been at any time since. His hemoglobin count sank and his blood pressure rose. Bleeding hemorrhoids were thought to be the root cause. They brought on anemia. Of course, none of these intimate medical details became public. When one evening dining at the White House, he suffered what his physician dismissed as a very slight heart attack. Not a word was spoken outside the inner circle about the president having been indisposed. This particular bad patch was now nearly three years behind him. There had been others, but the president's health was wide, not widely recognized as a question. On December 17, 1943, the day he returned to the White House from his five-week sea and air voyage to Tehran and Cairo, measured in the official log at 17,443 miles, the farthest any serving president had ever traveled. Charles Bolin, of course, this is in the era of propeller planes. Uh, Charles Bolin, his interpreter at every meeting with Stalin, said he showed no signs of fatigue in Tehran, that his health had been excellent. The evening of his return, Francis Perkins proclaimed him to be in magnificent shape. To Sam Rosamond, he looked robust and well. Here's what Henry Stimson wrote in his diary the same day. Just as we of the cabinet arrived there, the president was wheeled in from his car. He was in his traveling suit, looked very well, and greeted us all with a very great cheeriness and good humor and kindness. He was at his best. God. Let, let's talk more about his health. How did you, how did you research that? You've, you found more about his health than, than I think other biographers have. Well, the, 
I don't know about other biographers because, you know, in the, in the scope of a biography, people don't dwell on it. Yeah. Uh, but there have been about eight or nine books by, mostly by physicians who have taken on a, an avocation, a kind of uh, di- retrospective diagnosis of Roosevelt. Uh, some of them claiming it wasn't even a heart problem, it was a, it, or a cardiovascular problem, it was melanoma. And the, the, the debate has, has waged on largely because Roosevelt's medical records disappeared um, within days of his death from the safe where they were kept at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. It's a good guess, more than a guess, I would say, that they were disappeared by the Surgeon General of the Navy, who was also the White House, formerly the White House physician, a man named, an admiral named Ross McIntyre, who had served the president as White House physician since the beginning of his administration. But he was an ear, nose, and throat man. <laughs> and and his, his real, and he had become in all those years at the White House, uh, something of a politician, too. Uh, and he, he was responsive to the president's wishes. I've come around to the view, I don't express it in this book because I only came around to it in the course of one of these uh, <laughs> book gigs where uh, that, that uh, McIntyre, everything McIntyre did was under the instructions of Roosevelt and that the, his records disappeared because Roosevelt wanted to make sure that they would disappear. Uh, but I, I, there's no basis for uh, asserting that. That's just what, what would have happened. One of the debates that's going on is about releasing medical records of both candidates. What would have happened in 32, 36, 40, or 44? Well, when you think about it, Franklin Roosevelt's whole presidency, which we mostly deem now to have been one of the great presidencies, um, was based on secrecy and furtiveness about his physical condition. There are only about three or four photographs in existence that show him in a wheelchair, but that was his normal means of conveyance. There are hardly any images of him being carried like a baby by the Secret Service and lifted into a car, which happened any time he went anywhere. Uh, But the truth is, here was a man who couldn't walk a step unassisted, who couldn't get out of bed unassisted, who couldn't go to the bathroom unassisted unless he crawled, which he wasn't used to doing, although he learned how to do it after he was stricken with polio. Uh, and and uh, everything possible was done uh, uh, by Roosevelt himself and under his instructions for, to enable him to project an image of physical vitality, which he did remarkably well. And the press knew that everyone, the, the press knew there are, yes. there are accounts yeah. of uh, Roosevelt, uh, Bob Caro told me about uh, some film he'd seen in which uh, Roosevelt is getting off a boat uh, and he's walking down a gangplank, holding on. He had great upper body strength until the end of his life, almost the end of his life, uh, sort of swinging his way down the gangplank uh, with some assistance. Uh, and, and at that moment, all the, the whole White House press corps was there, all the photographers, and their cameras just went, they lowered their cameras. Uh, basically, access to the president uh, was scrupulously enforced, and uh, 
no one no one would continue to have access if he violated the rules. What about the Republicans? Did, did Wilk, when he ran in 40 and 44, did was, the Wilkie people know? Did of course. Did the Dewey people know? The White, the Washington knew. Washington knew. I mean, if he went to the White House correspondence dinner, which he would do every year, he would arrive in a wheelchair. But nobody would write, the president arrived in a wheelchair. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just the rules of the game. And Roosevelt was very accessible to the press by one standard. Uh, he met in a normal week, he would have two press conferences. Uh, uh, and they would last uh, the better part of an hour. Uh, and everything he said was off the record. <laughs> and, and if they wanted to quote something, they would have to, they would have to uh, ask permission. Uh, and, uh, and basically they were performances because, because there, there were no follow-up questions. Uh, he would ride right over a question and tell long stories quite delightfully, and they would all chuckle. At the end of his life, the, base, the whole subject of the press conferences was how he looked and how he sounded, because uh, people, that was a consideration, obviously. But what I'm getting at is that you ask about 32 and 36. Secrecy about the president's physical condition was, was almost uh, a, a fundamental to the, to the whole Roosevelt uh, performance as president. And even, I think if, I think you find over and over again people of that era saying they didn't know he couldn't really walk. He had an amazing way of walking. He, 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 he would sort of pivot on, he would usually have a cane. He would have his, he would be, his arm like this being held by a Secret Service chief or sometimes his, one of his sons. His sons yeah. and, and, and putting his weight on the cane, he, he would he would uh, sort of just swing his body in a way that looked like he was walking, but it was a sort of, uh, uh, he wasn't walking with his legs, he was swinging his legs using his upper body strength. Did, did he, I mean, towards the end of his life, uh, he had to have had infinitely more Trouble standing, walking, but, pretending. But he had, first of all, he didn't appear in public very often, yeah. toward, except for the 1940, two weeks at the end of the 1944 campaign. And, and, uh, and when he appeared in newsreels or photographs, he was always seated. And he had a, a whole range of facial expressions and gestures that uh, showed what a vital man he was. He was do something with a cigarette holder and uh, wave it like a like a magic wand, and he his his facial expressions were were extraordinarily lively and charming, and uh, and uh, I don't people just somehow didn't notice that they never saw him standing. Well, do you do you have a different sense after doing this book than you had before about what the public deserves or should know? about the health and fitness of its chief executive? Well, this is me as a, a, someone who's written a book about Roosevelt uh, versus me as an editor. <laughs> and uh, as uh, I think Roosevelt was, you know, for whatever flaws and mistakes you, one can find in his uh, governance, a great leader. 
amazing leader. And uh, the country was fortunate to have him during the war. He, 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 on his own, really, without much consultation with his government or his cabinet, he took, he took major decisions for things like Lend-Lease and whole attitude to uh, sustaining the Soviet Union after the Nazi invasion, which was crucial to uh, winning the war because be between the Nazi invasion of, uh, of Russia and, uh, uh, and uh, the landing of, uh, of uh, Anglo-American forces on the Normandy beaches, three years passed. And, if, if, and in those three years, uh, the, the Soviet Union, the Red Army, decimated uh, a major portion of, 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 the, of the Nazi force, the Fairmont. So uh, that's a key decision that, that didn't have much support in the uh, military leadership of our country and, and certainly not in the Congress if it had been opened up. He just did it. And, uh, and, and so, you know, if... if uh, Cordell Hull had been president at that point, who knows what would have happened. Uh, so I, and so I'm left thinking, it's good that we had this cripple in the White House. Right. And, and, and it's good that the country was somewhat bamboozled by, by his whole impersonation of a, phys, of a physically able man. Because he... You can ask a question later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, they, but but, uh, but of course, I think, uh, and the press should not have been as compliant as it was in that period. But, it should not have been. But know. but that's something we 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 needed to learn. On the other hand, uh, nowadays we're capable of magnifying any you know flaw in, in a in a political candidate because the whole. Power of the media system this can can become uh, can become narrowed to only one thing is being discussed. Right. For instance, today. But uh, but the, the discussion, you know, the one wonders if the press had done a better job, um, and the public had known about Kennedy's health or Reagan's health when he ran for a second term, um, whether the dis... I guess it comes down to one's faith in the electorate. Can the electorate understand medical reports and make wise decisions, whether it's Roosevelt or Kennedy or Reagan? Not or just medical else? reports. What? Not just medical. Not just medical reports. We'll find out in a few weeks. Yeah. The... Um, Two of the decisive decisions that are taken in the spring of 1944 um, were one, Roosevelt's decision you know, to run for a fourth term and his designation of Truman as his running mate. Talk, talk a little bit about, about those. How did he, when did he make these decisions? How did he make these decisions? Well, it was whole, the whole, there was a, a whole structure to Roosevelt's, what, what people later came to talk of as decision-making process. It was all internal, and, uh, and uh, 
he, he didn't take decisions until he, he could see a way clearly to uh, move forward on some issue that was very important to him. And, and he, up until that point, he would allow people to, to just deduce what his views were. <laughs> he was attacked a lot during the war for not having any view about what to do after the war, when that was actually the thing that was preoccupying him. But he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't express himself about it very much. Um, so uh, the first part of your question, I'm well, sorry. The, the, the two decisions, one to run for a fourth for, term and then so to choose what I Truman. Think when he, that's why Tehran is, fits into this so, so uh, in, in such an important way. He returns from Tehran and on the whole, although he's not entirely convinced, he thinks he's gotten a good beginning with uh, Stalin and that something has been accomplished there. They've not only discussed uh, uh, the, uh, the alliance and the future of the war and D-Day, but they've discussed the establishment of an international organization to replace the League of Nations, and they've said something about what that should be. They've discussed a kind of post-colonial order, uh, usually leaving Churchill out of that discussion because Churchill didn't believe in a post-colonial order. And, and uh, and other, other crucial matters. And it's, Robert Sherwood wrote in his important book, Roosevelt and Hopkins, which has many flaws, but uh, makes Hopkins bigger than he was, but uh, 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 that it was perhaps the high point of the whole Roosevelt presidency. And, and there was that feeling that something big has been accomplished here. And Roosevelt, although he, was a very cool realist in most respects, Some, somehow shared that feeling. He comes home to Washington and he starts meeting with, you can see it in the schedule, almost within the week after he comes home, he has a lot of, he's been away for five weeks. He, he has a number of political meetings uh, with uh, Democratic national chairman, uh, other, other political leaders uh, and, and, they tell him what the polls clearly reveal. No other Democrat stood much of a chance of being, being elected in 1944. And, uh, and, and they tell him that, that there's an overwhelming need and duty on his part to run. And he listens to all this. And, and as he listens to almost anyone who comes to him and leaves them with the feeling that he understands what they're saying and they're on the same wavelength. It's remarkable how, how people could enter Roosevelt's office, make a pitch to him uh, and, and go away feeling highly satisfied having been told nothing. Uh, and and uh, it happened over and over again. And, and in this case it happens, but there, his silence in this case obviously has a meaning. He, he doesn't say, uh, I'm not well, first of all, he thinks he is well. And he, he, that's very important. The, time, the timeline here is very important. It's not that he decided to run again when he was, when he was sick. It's that, he, that the, the train sort of left the station when he was well. And, and, and he also felt he had this important relationship that he was perhaps over-invested in with Stalin that he was developing he didn't see who he could hand that over to. So, so when, when he chooses, what about when he chooses 
Truman, does he assume that, it, that he's healthy enough to last the four years? Uh, I think not. Uh, f- first of all, on, uh, I go through this, uh, you know, I, there have been lots written about how he did this. And I, I've come up with, this, with a narrative sequence that makes sense to me. Uh, others may find holes in it, but nobody's really attacked it yet, so I'm not sure they will. Uh, I hope not. Uh, uh, I think the first part of that decision was he did not want Henry Wallace to be president. And, and, uh, and I, I think if you follow through the sequence of his, he, he had forced Henry Wallace on the party in 1940. So much as said that he wouldn't run unless, unless Wallace was nominated for vice president. Wallace was a former Republican who had never stood for public office. The party didn't want him, but they, got, they, they swallowed him. In, the, in those four years, Wallace gained no authority in Washington among presiding over the Senate, had very little influence, but he was out in the country a lot making political speeches and, and somehow won the admiration of the liberal wing of, and labor wings of the Democratic Party. So he was a much stronger candidate in 44 than he, he, he would have been than he was in 1940. On the other hand, Roosevelt had much less confidence in him for, for a variety of reasons, both within the government and some peculiar things about Wallace uh, that, that came to light. And, and, uh, and so, of course, Roosevelt did what Roosevelt would do in a situation like this. He assured Wallace that he wanted him on the ticket <laughs> and urged him to take a trip to Siberia. <laughs> Literally, and he, he then spent weeks in Siberia when he should have been sealing the, his place on the ticket. Uh, and and uh, the next person, the person who he told Harry Hopkins he thought was most qualified to succeed to succeed him or be his running mate was Jimmy Burns, former Supreme Court justice, former senator, but a South Carolina segregationist. Uh, you know, like any other Southern senator in those days, and and who had basically run the domestic side of the White House during the war. He was known familiarly around Washington as the assistant president. He he was certainly experienced enough and respected enough to step into the role. The question was, would he damage the ticket and could he be nominated? Because Roosevelt wasn't going to force he thought any he wasn't going to force any candidate on the convention, but on the other hand, he wasn't going to allow them to pick anyone he didn't want. <laughs> so, so he, so he assured at the in the same days that he had, he was encouraging Wallace, he even offered to sign a uh, declaration that if he were a delegate, he'd vote for Wallace. Uh, he he assured Jimmy Burns that he had his support. And he should run. And he said, if you run, you'll win. Uh, and and, and in, in, the, in the same few days, he dispatched other leading people to go to Wallace and Burns and tell them that they had to withdraw. <laughs> and, and so that, then the question was, if not Wallace and Burns, who? And, and uh, there were two names still in contention. One was William O. Douglas, uh, who who had a small coterie supporting him, 
Uh, he was a Supreme Court justice and had all the liabilities uh, that Wallace had had in that he had never been a retail politician. Uh, and he'd been a law professor and, and a regulator. Uh, Roosevelt liked him. He said he has a nice head of hair and plays a good game of poker. Uh, but but uh, he didn't press it. And in fact, Douglas was never nominated. Uh, I mean, his name was never put in nomination. That left Harry Truman, who Roosevelt knew least of all, but respected uh, for the way he had handled the committee he, uh, he was charged with uh, uh, that looked into corruption and spend uh, on war materials. And he, Roosevelt's, here's the key thing, at a, at a, at a meeting, the day after, or the night, I think, of uh, Roosevelt's declaring that he that he uh, would be a candidate, because he only acknowledged that he would be a candidate eight days before the uh, before the convention start of the convention. It's a wonderful system. We should think of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but. Uh, he started the meeting by talking about assassination attempts on his life, uh, or one, the one attempt and various plots that the Secret Service supposedly had un- uncovered. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that certainly put the issue of mortality on the table. Then, then he gave a speech, in, in a warm speech, uh, talking about all of Henry Wallace's Virtues and went immediately to the to other possibilities. So he he had in a way been loyal to Wallace, but he he'd taken nobody. There was no discussion. What the, the Wallace discussion was over. Uh, same with Burns, uh, and and he had got Ed Flynn, the boss of the Bronx, to bring up the name of Harry Truman. He had arranged that before before the meeting. And when the name of Truman came up, Roosevelt acted surprised, said he didn't know him. Uh, but, uh, and then he asked a question, which I think shows that he had, that he wasn't just looking for a running mate. He said, does he have, does he have the personality to be president? And, and, uh, and that question was never answered, but, but it shows where he was thinking. I think the, the one thing one has to remember in all of this, that Roosevelt had been, by this point, had been talking for over a year about the possibility that, that he might have to resign at some point. And, and he, he, he didn't say this to many people, and he didn't say it often, but it was clearly on his mind. That was, his, that was sort of his escape hatch, if, if, if it got to be too much. But he had sort of week by week and month by month uh, shown himself that he could still do the job even on a reduced work schedule, drastically reduced work schedule. And, and, uh, and he thought it was his duty to soldier on. I don't think he was aiming for the end of the war itself, but the end of the war in Europe. And there was a question in this period, is when would the war in Europe end? Because, yeah. uh, and he had been told that it would end by the end of the year. And, uh, and this is before the Battle of the Bulge and Hitler's counterattack. And, and so he, one possibility was he, the, that he might not even have to stand for, for re-election. By July, uh, that was off the table. Now, everything I'm saying, by the way, is 
is deduction from following the timelines of when he said what. Yeah. Uh, it, because he, he almost never discussed the central issues you raised with anybody. There's an extraordinary meeting that um, Bob Hannigan, the head of the National Democratic Committee, I guess, or the head of the party, and Truman have with... Chairman of the committee. Have with uh, Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy, by this point, just hates Roosevelt. Um, He's vicious. And they have a meeting because they're trying to get money from Kennedy for the 44 campaign. And Hannigan says, look, I want you to meet Truman because Roosevelt's not going to last. They have two meetings, right? Yeah. Roosevelt, there's, there's no way. You know, he's a, he's a dead man walking. Um, and Kennedy says, again, I'm not going to give a dollar to that son of a bitch. And they say, you're not giving money to him. You're giving money to Harry Truman. Um, and Kennedy nods and he, and he gives him the money. Um, one wonders in, in democratic circles if, first of all, there's always the possibility that Kennedy's exaggerating, which is more than a possibility. But in, in democratic circles and in Republican circles, is, is there this sense that, you know, this is, this is a dead man walking? I don't think so. You don't think so? Uh, I've talked a lot about this with uh, Jeff Ward, who, yeah. who has written uh, brilliantly about uh, about Roosevelt, and we both agree, and may, others have different views, that uh, that a lot of this uh, talk about how everybody knew he was dying. If you if you go to the to the actual go to newspapers, go to diaries. Uh, it's very hard to find anybody who, who says anything like that, yeah. close to that. They, is he sick? How sick he is? At, uh, is another question. But uh, but this is this wisdom comes to people much later. There's a man named Ed Pauley who was the treasurer of the Democratic Party, who somehow seeded all the archives that deal with Roosevelt, with uh, with, with autobiographical essays about how he how he organized the. Uh, the nomination of Truman uh, to uh, to by by telling leaders of the party that that Roosevelt uh, wasn't going to last, but you can't find any evidence except Pauli's own testimony after Roosevelt's death that that he was so central to it. Meanwhile, you can find Roosevelt sending Wallace to Siberia. Uh, uh, the, the person who was maneuvering and manipulating uh, behind the scenes, the it's puppet mas- master, it seems to me, is clearly Roosevelt. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I'm very skeptical uh, of, of the idea that, the, that there, there is some counter evidence um, in, uh, in a... Uh, in, in the Republican Party, uh, Herbert Brownell, who was the campaign chairman for Thomas Dewey and later Eisenhower's attorney general, told uh, 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 a Dewey biographer that they sweated bullets over whether they could raise the health issue. But the truth is they didn't know anything about Roosevelt's health. Right. And, and uh, they, they had nothing to put on the table. 
when if they if they said that he, if they found a, a way to say he's a dead man walking. The the October um, in October he goes on this extraordinary campaign trip. Um, why is he afraid he's going to might lose the election? Does he want to show his stamina and his strength? Well, first of all, uh, I mean this is something about the. Uh, the medical qualities, the the the, the health index of, of, of politicians. Uh, Roosevelt's blood pressure started to go down during high blood pressure started <laughs> to come down into a reasonable, not because of anything the doctors were doing, but as soon as he started campaigning, he got healthier, and uh, and he loved it. Uh, what he he took an amazing trip, a famous trip to New York, and in in. Uh, in October 44, uh, in which he went around the f- four of the five boroughs in a motorcade of about 50 miles, lasting over four hours in, in a driving rain in an open car, uh, and and uh, appeared at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, appeared in the Bronx, uh, changed his had his clothes changed at least twice on the trip because uh, he was soaked through. Uh, and of course, Roosevelt just couldn't go into a private room and change his clothes. He had to go into a, into a room with his uh, valet and some assistant to change his clothes because he couldn't dress himself, uh, and uh, or for the most part. And and uh, and he he completed the trip in the rain, and that was a great demonstration of uh, of his vitality. He then had a two or three bourbons in the afternoon <laughs> and, and gave a 45-minute speech at the Waldorf to, uh, uh, the, I think, his best speech on his, his, uh, of the whole war on his view of the, uh, uh, of the future, uh, after, post-war future, uh, to, to, to the Foreign Policy Association. Uh, he, he, he was amazing that day. And then he proceeded... Through, uh, to Chicago and Philadelphia and Boston and with various stops in between in Indiana, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, from the back of a train uh, sp- speaking. Uh, so he, he rose to the occasion. He, he certainly did. Um, and that speech is extraordinary, the, the, the one-year reference. It is. It's, it's a beautiful... Stands, it's it, a, Roosevelt would go through six or seven drafts before yeah. he was satisfied with the speech. Let, let's, you know, you've had three, maybe more, remarkable careers as a journalist and foreign correspondent, um, for which part of that career you won a Pulitzer for Move Your Shadow, South Africa, Black and White, your reporting in Johannesburg. It's number one. Number two, as an editor and the executive editor of the New York Times, and then interim executive editor in 2003, um, you were there a long time as executive editor. And then your third career is as a historian and a biographer. There may be another career in there or one to come that I don't know about. I was a busboy once. (laughs) Were you a successful busboy? Well, I I spilled some soup on the uh, white dinner jacket of Jacob Javits. (laughs) That's why you had to go into journalism. No, that's that's why I had to become a cabana boy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, talk to us about how your experience as a busboy and cabana boy, as well as a journalist and an editor, how do they sort of complement or compromise your work as a, as a historian? Well, getting from being a reporter to an editor was a real change in my life because as a reporter, I, I valued this great newspaper that I was fortunate enough to work for on, uh, by one index, how well it played my stories <laughs> and, and how well it treated me. And it generally treated me quite well, so I had few complaints. But, uh, but I, I didn't look at the whole enterprise in any uh, very objective way. And I, I have to admit that by in plain language, I, I, I was ego-driven and easily satisfied with a good play of a good story. Uh, as an editor, uh, somehow ego was much less part of the, the, uh, the uh, appeal of the job for me. I, I, I felt the responsibility of, of uh, being responsible for everything that appeared in the paper because in a sense you are, even though you can't know everything that's going to appear on any particular evening. But uh, for the choices I made and staffing and things of that sort and on coverage, it was a very different era. It was before, we, it wasn't a 24-7 business the way it is today with the internet uh, and, and uh, making front page decisions was a, was a, uh, a crucial part of uh, I felt of the editor's responsibility, and and so I, 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 you know, my whole relationship to the paper changed. It took a while after I left the paper. I, I was determined to leave at the end of my tenure there, uh, rather than hang on as as an opinion writer or something of the sort, and to see what I could do just as a writer on my own two feet. And uh, without, I have, I have a friend who, uh, who who left Bob Lipside, who was a great sports columnist and writer, who left the Times once, and um, and uh, before I brought him back later, uh, and and uh, I said I asked him, "What's it like out there?" It, and uh, he said, "Well, it's it's uh, it's it's great once you learn that you learn that you have a new last name." <laughs> and I said, what's your last new last name? I was a little slow on the uptake. He said, Lipside. And I, I, had to, I, I had to ask him to explain that. He said, well, what was your old last name of the New York Times? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I remember what he said at that point. He said, all those years I thought those doors were swinging open for me. <laughs> Well, I, I've had that experience. I've had the experience of calling up politicians and saying, this is Joe Lelyveld of the New York Review of Books. Somehow, especially with Republican <laughs> politicians, it, it's not a great help. <laughs> Often you have to say, what's the New York Review of Books is, is the next question. So, so I did some magazine writing and then I got into book writing and uh, uh, it, it it, I loved the freedom of the writing, 
and it was and being my own editor and it was uh it's just been a different life it took a while to not sit there at the breakfast table every morning and second guess my successors about the decisions <laughs> they've made but i i think i've gotten over that to a considerable you, degree are you a better historian or biographer because you've been a daily reporter and an editor? Well, first of all, I, I don't think of myself as a historian. I, I, I've, well, I'll make I, that decision. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I was a graduate student in, in history uh, for a year. And in about the third week of that year, I, dis, I, re, I stepped out on the steps of Widener Library up in Cambridge and looked at the leaves swirling in Harvard Yard and said to myself, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Uh, and and uh, I, I didn't learn great archival skills doing that. And I have to say, at this stage in my life, uh, uh, my memory is a little shaky. My, my note-taking is a little uh, uh, haphazard. I sometimes would, at the, at the FDR archive, I would sometimes uh, uh, make a copy of a... I see all these young scholars there with their tiny cameras <laughs> and their phones <laughs> making copies of everything and then loading it into the right files in their laptops. And it's amazing what they do. I mean, they, they, can, they can go through a, a, a bunch of archival boxes in, in an afternoon and, and have it all lined up on their laptops. I, I, I don't have the skills to do anything. Do you enjoy archival research? I enjoy these. I enjoy making an intuitive guess where I'm about where I might find something interesting, yeah. and then finding something that's quite surprising. Yeah. Uh, often it's just a good anecdote. But in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the central things were first of all online from the library, and have been worked over 82 times by by uh, scholars and competent biographers and. Uh, and so you're not gonna you're not gonna open a box and find something that's revelatory uh, in a major way uh, because it's all out there somewhere if you know where to look for it. I've, I developed ways of getting around my my lack of scholarly skills, uh, which uh, largely involved hiring an archi young archivist, somebody who had just finished working at the uh, New York University, gotten his degree in archival studies or whatever it's called at NYU, and, and, and basically had access to everything that was on the internet through a position he held at the public library. <laughs> and, and, and I would tell him, for instance, I got very interested. Roosevelt suffered an amazing legislative defeat in February 1944. He's the presumptive nominee of his party, although he hasn't shown any interest in running but at that point. And, and the leader of the Senate resigns over a budget issue and assails the White House in a very emotional speech. And, and for two or three days, the newspapers of the country uh, cover this as if this is the likely end of the Roosevelt era. Uh, and, and Roosevelt's just sitting up there in Hyde Park, paying hardly any attention to it. Uh, and and 
I wanted to see some of that coverage, but I didn't have the patience or the note-taking ability anymore to sit, at the, go down to the public library and run all those papers through the through the microfilm thing, and uh, and so I asked this young man. I named six papers, uh, especially the Louisville Courier Journal. Uh, uh, which, because the senator in question was a the sen senior senator from Kentucky, and and uh, and that was a great paper in those days, uh, and I asked him to go through the period and find me interesting commentaries, editorials, local coverage. Baltimore Sun was another paper I mentioned, and and I gave him what for me would have been a month's work to to do. And, and within a week, I got back uh, two or three uh, uh, plastic folders from Staples full of uh, copies, photocopies of everything I was interested yeah. in because he could do all this sitting at his computer. And, uh, and, uh, and so that was my big boost. It always helps. Yeah. Let me, let me jump from... I mean, the book begins with Tehran, and it's sort of towards the the end of that. This five hundred days um, is Yalta. Um, by the time the Roosevelt at Yalta is a very different Roosevelt than at Tehran. Uh, talk about his assessment and his relationships with Stalin and Churchill at at Yalta? Well, first of all, his relationship with Churchill, although there was deep affection, I think mutual affection, had, had, had turned sour in, in many respects. Uh, Churchill felt, I think with considerable justice, that, that in, in Roosevelt's estimation, Britain was no longer an equal partner in the world, uh, and, uh, that it had slipped to its kind of junior partnership status. And, and there, if you follow their correspondence closely, it's, it's clear that, uh, that he's, you find him differing with Roosevelt on many key issues, the timing of the D-Day invasion, whether there should be an invasion in the south of France to uh, complement that invasion, what kind of an effort should be made in Italy, the importance of the eastern Mediterranean, which Roosevelt just couldn't see the idea of sending American forces to the to the Balkans, uh, and the American military wasn't in the least interested in that. They wanted to get to Berlin as fast as possible in the, on the straightest possible route, which began in Britain, went to went Western Europe, and then you know across if, 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 if the work, their plans worked out as they eventually more or less did despite the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, Churchill was always looking for diversions to protect British interests in the Suez Canal, in Egypt, uh, in Greece. Uh, he, he, at the time, the, uh, he, I think it was Tehran, he was very interesting, interested in cap recapturing the island of Rhodes uh, which to, to Roosevelt made no sense at all. Uh, and and uh, I think that's really 
if you, if you think of it in terms of the British Empire, which no longer exists, you, you can see where the difference emerges. And it's a difference that's going to play into the whole, any discussion about the future. Because uh, uh, Roosevelt and Stalin have a conversation about whether it would be a good thing to make a trusteeship out of Hong Kong. Uh, that, that drove Churchill nuts. What, what about Stalin? Do, do you think, I mean, Roosevelt has often been accused of being outmaneuvered, outplayed by Stalin at Yalta. Well, I try to I try to follow the whole Polish issue, which is the which is the crux of the matter at Yalta, uh, 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 throughout the book. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, I think Roosevelt understands very early on that whatever he does, the Red Army is going to occupy Poland. And by the time the Yalta Conference begins, the Red Army has occupied, occupied Poland, the whole of it, and uh, is on the verge of going into Germany. Uh, and, and there's no question, no one in America is calling for uh, American forces to keep going east after the fall of the, of, of the Nazi rule. Uh, and, and uh, there's no question, and nor was it militarily feasible when you think about it. Uh, so Roosevelt was trying to maneuver Stalin into a kind of more conciliatory view of the alliance and, and making small territorial adjustments. A lot of it turned on the future of the city of Lviv, formerly Lvov, which had been ruled by both the Russians and the Poles back and forth over the previous century and a half and, and was hardly one, or th one thing or the other. Poles and Ukrainians both lived there, as had many Jews, uh, uh, in, until there were no more Jews left there. Uh, and, and, uh, and Roosevelt went, it, it's remarkable to me how, Roosevelt followed that effort. Immediately after D-Day, he, he made a, what seems to me a very personal initiative to move Stalin on, uh, on Poland and seems to be getting a response. Right. So you, things that are now clear to us in the light of, of uh, a half century of history were, were, were not clear. He was testing all the time to see what he could put on the table that would... would uh, would uh, move Stalin. And of course, the D-Day invasion was the biggest thing that Stalin wanted. The opening of the Second Front uh, uh, was what he wanted most out of the Allies from the beginning of the war. And, and so at that moment, Roosevelt tried to pre press forward on, on Poland. So I don't think he was outmaneuvered. Uh, circumstances were difficult, and Stalin ultimately, for whatever reasons, was not the the partner that Roosevelt hoped he could make him. Uh, but now, was Roosevelt naive about Stalin? I, Roosevelt had two things in his pocket uh, that he could have used at, at uh, Yalta and didn't. One was the Russians had made a formal request for a major credit on the order of Lend-Lease for post-war reconstruction, which Lord knows they needed after after everything the Soviet Union had been through. And, and they wanted $6 billion, which isn't huge by today's standards, but I don't know if you played that out, it's very large. 
and and uh, on a on a credit in which they wouldn't have to make repayments for for many years. And and Roosevelt never brought that up for discussion at Yalta. And I think if you this is this is the uh, many faceted Roosevelt mind. I think if I think he was looking at Stalin's response on Poland. He was looking at the Congress. He uh, and he he was just trying to think of what what would he get for it and what was politically feasible in the United States. And it just didn't seem something that that could work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And and but and the other thing he had, and he knew Stalin knew about it, was the secret of the A bomb. I don't mean how to make an A bomb. Roosevelt didn't have the foggiest idea of that. But, uh, but uh, he had never told Stalin about this huge effort that was being made at Los Alamos. Stalin knew about it because he had spies there. And, 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 and Roosevelt had known for a year that Stalin knew about it. But he, he could have said, he could have said at that moment as a confidence builder, now we need to talk about the coming atomic age. And, and he didn't. Again, I think through lack of confidence in, 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 in Stalin at that moment. But not because of health problems or lack of stamina or any of those things. Well, his sta- his, he had health problems at Yalta, severe ones. But, but he pulled they, himself but, together. But, they, but he... But in the, I, the testimony I value most is that of Chip Boland, yeah. who was his, who was there for every conversation he ever had with, with uh, Stalin, and who said that Roosevelt was a sick man at Yalta, but that he was effective, and 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 that's the judgment of the most serious historians. There there are four or five solid books on Yalta, uh, and I, I, I've read the, the best of them and looked at all of them. And the judgment is that Roosevelt was a central figure at the Yalta conference, not just a sick, dying man right. in, uh, in denial or whatever. A walking, what was your phrase? A walking dead. Walking but, dead. but but he but uh, he 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 tried to move the thing. He got as far as he could get, and at a certain point, he wanted a he he came away needing a happy story. He didn't want the results of this conference. To be that the Allies had differed violently about uh, about the future of Poland. Right. Neither did neither did Churchill. Uh, and 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 after all this the huge effort of the war, what the country had been through, he he needed to come back in some way, and and say that that this whole huge effort was working out. We had a program for peace. So. The, the communique was very upbeat about the future of Poland and what had been agreed there uh, was, was described in language that any small D Democrat could applaud. I, I urge you, we, we don't have time to talk about it, is to, you know, to get the book, you can buy it outside. Thank you. And then to, to, to read, it, it's... I mean, it, it's almost Shakespearean, the way in which the, the return from Yalta. Um, but he doesn't just come back from Yalta. Yalta's a long way away. Certainly in 1945, he goes to Egypt and he meets with... Ibn Saud. ...with the king of Saudi to talk about Palestine and the Jews. He doesn't get what he wants. 
Um, but he but he makes that effort. By the time he gets back to the United States, um, I mean, a 25-year-old would be exhausted from this trip. Um, he comes back to the United States and he lives three three more months. He comes back to the United States on March 1st, March 1st. I, th I think, 1945, and, and he, he dies, dies six, eight, six weeks later. Yeah. Let me just ask one more question, and then we'll open it up. Um, one of the remarkable parts of the story that I didn't know enough about, or I didn't take it seriously, is the return of Lucy Mercer Rutherford to, to his life. It is poignant, it's heartbreaking, um, it's just a remarkable part of, of this man's life. Can, can you talk about it just a little well, bit? Well, for those who don't know, Lucy Mercer was Eleanor's social secretary uh, during World War I when Franklin Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy in the Wilson administration. And, and unpacking Roosevelt's bags in 1917 when he returned from a trip to Europe, Eleanor found he was sick in bed and Eleanor found Lucy's love letters. And uh, that basically ended the conjugal relationship between Franklin and Eleanor. They almost got divorced in that period until they worked out a, a new relationship as parents and political figures. Uh, uh, and, and Roosevelt, in the course of that, promised never to see Lucy again. Uh, uh, he didn't keep that promise for very long. Uh, he, he began a correspondence with her in the 20s, uh, by which time she's married to a wealthy, much older uh, zillionaire from uh, so-called sportsman. Uh, uh, with homes in South Carolina and New Jersey and New York. And, and uh, he sends her letters. There's, there are a few in the, uh, in the Roosevelt archive. He sends her very sort of newsy topical letters, like, almost like a kid would write back from summer camp and sign them all, sincerely yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, but they, they weren't love letters, but they kept up the communication. She went to each of the, the Secret Service brought her to each of his four inaugurals, uh, and they were they talked on the phone. The switchboard chief of the switchboard at the White House knew that if a Mrs. Paul Johnson called, she, she whatever the president was doing, she could be put right through. If he was meeting with other people, they spoke in French, and uh, and. Uh, and I don't know how often he saw her in that period, but uh, 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 what happens in 44 is her husband dies in his 80s. This is, it happened, within a week, she, she comes to Hyde Park when Eleanor's away and, and Roosevelt comes up by a secret train from Washington just to meet her and they spend an afternoon together. In, in March 44. That's two days before Roosevelt goes to the Bethesda Naval Hospital for the medical examination with the doctor who would become his, basically his live-in cardiologist. 
and uh, and she's there at key moments. Uh, 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 for the rest of his life, she he he sees he spends the weekend with, basically seeing her several days in a row, uh, at the White House because again Eleanor is traveling as she almost always is. Uh, uh, she comes to dinner I think uh, several nights in a row, and they take trips they take rides in the country in a presidential limousine. Uh, in the days before he announces that he's running for president. Uh, she's there. She's there before the Yalta trip to Yalta, and she's there at, uh, um, with him when when he dies. Eleanor discovers none of this until the night of his death, when she flies down to view the body and bring it back to Washington. And she asks a cousin of Roosevelt's who was with him when he died, and she hears that that Lucy Rutherford had been there. And, and to her, that's just devastating news. And, and it's especially devastating because she learns that her daughter, Anna, who had been living in the White House, uh, had, had, been, had arranged the dinners at the White House in, in June and later. Uh, now, I discovered none of that. Books have been written about this. What I did was simply like so much in the book, my reasoning is basically based on timelines, what's going on at the same time. And I think uh, scholars have a way of doing these things subject by subject. Uh, but uh, the narrative loses a lot of force when you do that. Right. When you discover that, the, uh, that, that, Luce, that he's spending the weekend, Ch- Charles de Gaulle is making a state visit to... Uh, uh, Washington the weekend before he announces that he's going to uh, stand as a candidate again, uh, and 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 the president is off at camp, what we now call Camp David, what he called Shangri-La with Lucy, and uh, 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 and when you fit that all together, he seems to want to see her uh, at at. He wants to see her all the time, but he seems to want to see her at key moments. And, and it's hard to make anything of it there. Cars, she burned his letters uh, after, after he died, and it's, we'll probably never know more than we know now. But it seems to me it's quite clear, although there were other women who were around all the time, that, that, uh, that uh, Lucy was very important all through the last year of his life. Yeah. Um, we have time for just a couple of questions, um, but just a couple. And please, if you have a question, come to one of the mics and ask a question. Don't give us a speech or a comment. Okay. And we'll just do a couple of them. Yes, sir. In the book by the neurologist in New Jersey who thinks the, that melanoma was the underlying cause, my question is, he says that Roosevelt was examined by a team of doctors from the Leahy Clinic in Boston who told him, you have, or told Roosevelt's doctors, maybe Dr. Brune, he won't make it past one year. 
Now, I know Roosevelt heard what he wanted to hear and took what he wanted to, but what was Roosevelt told? How much did he know that either he chose to ignore or chose to accept? Uh, Dr. Lamazau, is that how you say it? The neurologist from New Jersey who's made a career out of this, uh, attacks my book on Amazon, uh, and his main complaint is that I didn't come to him to interview him. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to an oncologist I know at, uh, at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, who also took the view that it was melanoma. The case for melanoma is in the sim- details of the symptoms uh, uh, very clear. It's not a single piece of paper that says that Roosevelt had cancer. Uh, and, and what we have of a, the remnants of his medical records in what people said to each other at the time. I went to great effort to, uh, to see what the Leahy Clinic had. I went up to, I, I made three or four trips up, the, up there. And for, at first I was told there was no archive. Uh, eventually I was told, uh, after two or three visits, I was told I could see what little they had left over from Dr. Leahy's uh, papers. And I was shown a fair amount. Third trip, I, they brought in 40 big boxes <laughs> of all Leahy's papers and, uh, for, uh, from that period and other periods. And I, I didn't go through every piece of paper in those 40 boxes. I just spent a morning there. But I, I, I burrowed into the ones that uh, had to do with his, his travels and his communications. I'm a believer, as I believe that neurologist in New Jersey is not in the authenticity of the Leahy letter, which is a whole other subject. Leahy left a a letter for posterity, uh, which became the subject of a a big court fight in Massachusetts in the 1880s. And I I think I'm right in asserting that in the 1980s. 1980s, did I say 1880? That's where I really live. Uh, uh, And I think the the lawyer for the Leahy Clinic at that time was was also Teddy Kennedy's lawyer for Chappaquiddick. (laughs) And and his name was Edward Hanafy. And he was the the Kennedy family lawyer. The Kennedys were the first big supporters of the Leahy Clinic. John Kennedy was, uh, uh, and, and his brothers were there for, uh, were treated there as children. They had the, all the Kennedy medical records and, and the issue was patient confidentiality. And they weren't, really weren't concerned about the Roosevelt records. They were co- concerned about the Kennedy records, I believe. Anyway, it worked out. The, the full text of the Leahy letter didn't come into open domain until 2007. Uh, and I, I, I believe it's authentic because I've seen the arrangements Leahy's secretary made for his trip to Washington uh, uh, the, the weekend, bef- that same weekend when de Gaulle was there and Lucy was there, Leahy was there. He wanted to tell the president that he shouldn't run again. And, and instead he, he, he talked to McIntyre who, who, the White House physician, and they, they remained close afterwards. And he said that McIntyre agreed with everything he said. Uh, to me, that all points to who's the central actor in the story. 
It's it's not McIntyre. It's not it's not the doctors. Uh, it, it, it's Roosevelt and the uh, diaries of, of Daisy Sickly, which we haven't discussed. Something not discovered till the 1990s and not published until uh, till late in the 90s. Uh, uh, show that Roosevelt understood that Bruin was a, was a cardiologist. He, Roosevelt was not a very dim man. If, if they were giving him an EKG twice a day, uh, I, I think he could draw conclusions from that. And, and I think he did. Yes, ma'am. Uh, this is actually somewhat related. Could you speak a little more about Roosevelt's discussions about the fact that he might not survive and how that led to his choice of Truman? Well, his, he never said I might not survive. He just by him, you have to read all the accounts of that one evening and, 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 and see that he had brought the subject up uh, on several occasions. But uh, the first indication that he might be interested in Truman and I'm not sure it's the first that there was because there, there are even some, uh, Margaret Truman writes in her biography of her father that they had offered the job of Democratic National Chairman to Truman. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the basis of, I guess her father told her that. But Truman was on the fringe of the presidential talk for months before his name ever appeared in any article. Uh, on the way back from Tehran, Roosevelt said to Harry Hopkins, according to Hopkins, that Truman would be a good man to have in the Senate when the, uh, when the peace protocols, whatever they were, were, were presented for ratification. He was still thinking of Woodrow Wilson and what happened to him, how he failed by two votes to get the, uh, the majority he needed to, for the Versailles Treaty and the League of Nations Covenant. And, and in the end, after Roosevelt's death, the UN Charter and, and, and the various peace documents were approved by the Senate 89 to 2. Uh, but so uh, he was over-concerned over about Woodrow Wilson's fate. But he said that Truman had the standing in the Senate, be a good man to have as vice president then, because he, he, he was respected in the Senate and he was a good politician and he could get it through. Uh, so that's the evidence that Roosevelt had him in mind for some time, although he hardly ever saw him. And, uh, and uh, the rest is just following out the play-by-play of that evening and his other maneuvers on the vice presidency. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. I, I apologize to the people still in line, but you, when you buy your books, you can ask your questions to Joe. What, what's yes. the explanation to the press, to staff, to the political world of the fact that Roosevelt suddenly goes from having a single White House doctor to a cardiologist in residence. And, you know, the man spends the entire time when he's down in the Baruch estate and he, he's, he's essentially living with Roosevelt. What, what is the public persona, the press persona, the staff persona? Well, this is very interesting. First of all, uh, it was never announced. <laughs> Second of all, when Roosevelt took a trip, Bruin's name was never on the manifest of people traveling with him. And, and it, it, 
his existence didn't become known until uh, August of, uh, of 1944, by which time both parties had made their nominations. Uh, and a reporter named Walter Trohan, who uh, uh, from the Chicago Tribune, wrote that there, there, all these many months there was this uh, uh, a cardiologist with with uh, with the president, but he couldn't find anybody to say what that might mean. And under the the norms of press reporting in those days, uh, he couldn't say it himself. So the story it just said there was a cardiologist, and it, there was no deduction made from that. And it didn't run on, although it was the Chicago Tribune, the most anti-Roosevelt paper in the country, they didn't put it on the front page. And that was it. And in fact, the same reporter had written a month or so earlier that all this talk about being, about Roosevelt being sick was probably because Roosevelt might withdraw from the race if he thought he was going to lose. He thought it was, that Roosevelt wasn't sick. He was just being, he was just being cagey and pretending to be sick. Uh, they, they mistrusted Roosevelt so much, they couldn't take his word for it. <laughs> the, the, I mean, they weren't getting his word for it. They couldn't take anyone's word for it that he was sick. I'll, I'll, if you'll give me a moment, I'll tell you one really interesting story about Dr. Bruin. Uh, I have a cardiologist, and I asked him to read my pages on all these matters and gave him Bruin's one essay on the subject and texts of some of his interviews in later years, all more than a quarter of a century after Roosevelt's death, uh, and, and to just check out what I had written. And, and he works in a suite of offices in, in, uh, on Park Avenue, and he, he uh, asked one of the senior doctors there, one of the older doctors, uh, if, had he ever heard of Howard Moon? And the doctor said, yes, he used to work in this suite of offices at the end of his life. Uh, and he was here when I got here. And he said, he, he, he said, as a matter of fact, he occupied the rooms you occupy. Okay. And, and so shortly thereafter, uh, that senior doctor was retiring and he was emptying his closet and he came upon something he had forgotten something that uh, Dr. Bruin's widow gave to him after Bruin died, which I think was in the 1980s. Uh, and that was a portable EKG machine oh, nice. in, a, in a beautiful wooden case uh, from the period of the 1940s and a brass plate on it. It wasn't an off-the-shelf EKG machine that just said Howard, Howard G. Bruin. Okay, yeah. And... Uh, and pretty clearly, this EKG machine had been to Yalta, Tehran, uh, the, for the Pole Pacific trip. And, and so my guy now has it. A, a fitting conclusion, an EKG machine. Thank you. Now you want me to do that long reading. <laughs> Thank you all again for joining us this morning. Just a reminder, the books are for sale outside on our Central Park West Side. The book signing will take place there as well. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again. Thank you, uh, Joseph Lelyveld and David Nassau for a wonderful job moderating as well.